You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 52 of season 12 for December 23, 2018. Now, in a way, this is the last episode... Okay, so this is the last episode of the 12th season, and yet not the last episode of 2018. Because of how the days fell this time around, if, if we'd started December two days earlier, then, then everything would have been fine end of season 12, end of 2018, both at the same time. It didn't happen that way, and we've got two straggler days at the end of this year on Sunday and Monday, so the 30th and 31st, meaning that the first season of season 13 is going to be, you know, actually within 2018 rather than in 2019. It doesn't really matter, honestly. You won't notice a difference. It'll still just come up in your feed reader as as normal. I'm just... I. I just want to clarify why there's an offset, or, or maybe not an offset, but a little bit of a, a malignment there. So in this episode, I, I want to, I'm, I'm thinking about doing something that I've not really done before, which is to do a little bit of a retrospective over the past year. I normally don't do this sort of thing, and in fact, I, I generally think that this sort of thing is kind of silly when they do it for, I don't know, like news, uh, you know, on news shows on TV or whatever. I, I never really get the the rationale for, like, why are we looking back over the year? It, it, it just happened. Like, wh- why do we need to look back at it? But this time around, especially since this whole year has been a week, every week has been a new GNU World Order episode. So I kind of feel like it, it, it feels a little bit natural to to do the to do the, the the retrospective just because that's how it's been it's every week there's been an episode so we we've been tracking things even though I don't track the news at all but also because I I honestly kind of feel like I, f- I feel a little bit like this has been kind of a busy year to be honest I I really I I feel like that and and I could be I could be crazy but I I feel like things have been happening this year in the Linux world that maybe yeah maybe there there ought to be a little bit of uh, a look back at it and and also that way in theory if ever we're sitting around thinking what did happen in 2018 anyway we'll have a nice little sum up of everything in in form of this episode there'll probably be a half a dozen other shows that do this exact same thing but maybe not because because not everyone does this sort of thing so anyway let's 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 do this let's look back at the year so back in January of 2018, we had a couple of a couple of exciting news items that I can recall or find evidence of on on the on the internet. So first of all, the FSF declared that pure what is it? Purism? I think it's called purism or pure OS is a an FSF approved GNU Linux distribution. It's based on Debian. I have used it. I've used it on a Purism laptop at a uh, convention that I was at this year. And I, I gotta say, it's super nice. I mean, it's super nice partly, I think, because of its, of its, uh, of it being bound to the hardware in a pretty, in a, in a pretty important way. And, and that is because they, they can, u- they have the luxury of being able to use a non-binary blobbed kernel because they know their hardware. They, they built the hardware on, on liberated components. That is to say, 
components that do not rely on proprietary firmware. And it's a super nice laptop. I, I, I was, I was not expecting to see one, but I, I walked by the FSF booth at All Things Open, and there was a guy there with a Purism laptop, and I, I kind of commented on it, and he said, here, why don't you try it out? He handed me the thing. And so I sat down, and I started typing and trying it out. I mean, it was super, super nice. It's a metal, it's all metal case, so it feels very solid. It, 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 everything just kind of is smooth. Everything's working well, you know. There's, like, the, the trackpad works well. It feels good. There's a little hardware kill switch on the side to turn off your, um, to turn off the the Wi-Fi or the Bluetooth or or maybe all networking I don't exactly remember or 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 maybe it was even further than that maybe it was um, whether it can boot or not or something like that I, I forget there was some kill switch sort of on the side that was super cool at the time I don't remember the details now but it was really really nice and I if I I mean, look, I'm really into recycling computers or reusing computers. I, I really don't like getting new computers. I just don't feel that they're necessary. And for that reason, I probably won't have a Purism computer anytime soon. But were I in the market for a laptop, I would definitely be looking at the Purism laptop. So I think of the things that happened in 2018, that really is one of the important ones, is that there is a, a very solid and usable and readily available free liberated open source laptop on the market very exciting you should you should check it out if you actually need a, a laptop of course i think with a lot of i think part of the problem with linux on a mar- in the marketplace is that a lot of linux users are really good at what they do and it's difficult to sell them an easy solution sometimes because that's not that's not the thing that we need it's 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 a nice to have but not a must have and so that that gets a little bit that gets complicated okay so further in in 2018 and i could be a little bit wrong about about the timing of this but there was this is at least when i heard about it a project called ELO, which is E-E-L-O. Whether or not that is called ELO anymore, I can't be sure. There's The, the website is e.foundation. Now, back in my day, e.something was referring to enlightenment. So I'm not entirely sure whether ELO, as they appear in my in my on the mailing list that I had joined back at the time, or whether they've rebranded, and as far as I can tell, they have rebranded to just E. But it's a project, attempting, at least, to build an open-source mobile operating system, which in itself is exciting. And I've I've supported Firefox OS, at least insofar as I have I have had a Firefox OS phone. I got it for free, but but I've used it, and I was I was as excited about it a phone OS as I possibly can be, which is to say, not very. But I do I do hope that some alternative to both iOS and Android does happen, and that that alternative is open source. I think one of the exciting things about the E project, or as it was called back when I signed up for the mailing list, ELO, is that it is, well, first of all, open source. That's exciting in itself. It, it is even, it's being developed on an, on their own instance of GitLab, so it's, I mean, everything, you know, it, the whole stack is open, as far as I can tell, which is really, really exciting. And it's a great example of someone, apparently, you know, actually, I don't know, following through on what they, uh, on what 
they say is important. So it's, it's, it's an exciting sort of pure feeling project in that sense. The person who started this project is Gael Duval, who, if you, if you think way back, you'll, you'll start to, th- you'll, you'll, you, you might remember that name. And in fact, this is the guy who started, or I don't know if he started, but he was heavily involved in Mandrake Linux, which of course was huge in its time. I mean, it was from what everyone says who was, who was around back then, says, what they say is that it was basically the Ubuntu of Linux. I mean, it was <laughs> the Ubuntu of Linux, but the Ubuntu of its time, uh, meaning that it was the, the, the user-centric kind of very inviting distribution. And and it was huge. I mean, Mandrake was huge. It, it set it set the stage for a lot of things that that ended up following it and becoming maybe huger. But it, it was a big deal at the time. And and so he was involved with that. Now he's in in charge of the E project. And it seems like they're making progress. I don't know. I can't test it. I I mean, I guess I could probably try with some kind of phone emulator or something. But I don't know that I really would be someone... I, I don't think I'm going to have the time to do that, to be honest. But it just so happens, and it seems like this happens a lot with me, is that I just... I, the, it's the device support that I lack. Um, and, you know, when choosing a mobile device, which invariably is um, more or less forced upon me by an employer, I, I try to pick the one that I feel will have open source support. And one of the big things about the Sony phones that I was reading, the Xperia line, was that they were, um, they, they were unlocked by, or un, they were rooted, you know, they, they, they were quite good for development or whatever. And, and now I'm finding that Lineage OS and E, neither of them happen to support the, the phone that I have. So I don't know how you're supposed to choose the right device for, for maximum compatibility, but, Especially since since the the device that you choose and you know you have to get it from a certain provider defined by your employer, so I don't know, it's very very complex apparently, and and I think that's that's one of the most aggravating things about the mobile market is how um, how diverse it is really. I mean, I would love the diverse software, but the hardware itself, I feel like someone has to someone has to rein this in and decide that there's a certain standard for how phones are built so that. People don't have to have to create 50 different images for their OS, but I mean, I don't know what's involved with that sort of thing, so I don't. I, I've not looked into it at all. So anyway, it's a thing. It happens. It, it happened around January or so of this year, and it is happening now. I mean, if if they're hitting their road roadmap uh, benchmarks, then then they should, in theory, be able to that they should be shipping the OS. Or, or having it widely available in 20, in January of 2019. That's, that's what they are, that's what their site says to this day. So, um, maybe that's happening. Maybe not. I don't know. I, I don't have a, a great feel for where they are in their, you know, in their benchmarking or, or rather on their roadmap, um, hitting their, their goals. But it's an exciting project, nevertheless. And you should go to the site, e.foundation, look at the supported devices and see, uh, you know, if, if you've got a, got a phone that you don't mind um, trying a different OS on, give it a shot. Go for it. See what happens. So in, f- uh, I don't know what happened in February or March or anything like that, but but sometime later uh, in the year of 2018, we got two, I'm going to call them major releases because, well, to me they are major, but al- but also they, they represent something, so, so bear with me. So, so Krita, Krita 4 
was released in in 2018. And Krita is, I think it's a from from my perspective, it's a hugely important application, and I've consistently contributed money to their Kickstarters, and now they're not really doing Kickstarters; they're just doing their own crowdfunding sort of solution on their own site. And and it's just a it's a brilliant application which brings really really like serious serious multimedia abilities to to Linux as an open source thing. I I find it to be I I just I don't want it to ever go away. I think it's a fantastic application. It it's it solves a lot of a lot of um it it answers a lot of th- things that people want to do on Linux and have I think previously kind of sort of been stuck with as it were with GIMP which really isn't a painting application. I mean there are great plugins for GIMP that that kind of turn it into a painting application. But uh, there are a lot of people are going to be more comfortable in Krita, and, and certainly the brush engine is a lot more impressive in Krita, in Krita than it is in GIMP. I mean, GIMP's brushes are fine, but they're, they don't really compare to, to the Krita brush engine. So that's exciting. And then I'll, I'm going to go ahead and mention the other one, which is GIMP, the GIMP release, which was 2.10, which... Uh, I don't remember. I could have told you at the time, but I mean, it's been years since a, a, a big, sort of official major GIMP release, or, or you know, a big major increment. And and some important milestones were reached here, like the Gaggle integration and just some some usability things within GIMP, kind of got got released with the 2.10. Now, interestingly, I, I'm not actually, I'm I'm kind of not excited about either of those things. Or I'm not mentioning either of those things because of those things. I'm mentioning them because of what they represent. And what they represent is exactly two different kinds of release mechanisms. One, Krita, is using the app image mechanism. And GIMP is largely using uh, and promoting the flat pack release mechanism. And as you know, dear listener, I'm excited about both of these things. And I, I want to summarize this again because I feel like... I feel like I've said this, but people keep forgetting about the the things. So these are points that I feel like if you're ever in a conversation about this sort of thing, you might want to mention to people. I mean, if you agree with it, you may not. You may be one of those people who thinks that package management as it is on Linux is fine. And that's fine if that's what you think. I respectfully believe that you are incorrect, but that's that's okay. Like, we can we can do that. So the first important thing to understand about why app image and flatpak are exciting is is because current package management does not allow essentially it does not allow for offline um inst- installation or or migration in other words if you find yourself at a cafe or if you, you know you're going to find yourself at a cafe and you think I'm not going to have internet there but I know that I'm going to need to install some some package. Well, luckily I have that some package on my uh, USB thumb drive. So I'm going to go to the cafe where I will where I will need to have this package, and I will plug in my thumb drive, and then I will install it from that, and then I'll be done. So the current model of package installation doesn't really have that. I mean, you can you can do it. it don't get me wrong. It's it is it's possible. The problem is that in order to do it, you have to download the package and then all of its dependencies, which is not always, it's, it's not trivial to get that, to get that, uh, you know, together. 
and then depending on your package manager you you may need to re you may need to install those things in the order in the order that they want to be installed which again it's possible you can do it it's not in, you, you you try to inst, you know point point your installer at a folder and tell it to install everything it'll fail 9 out of 10 times but then on that one time that doesn't need a dependency i guess it'll do that and then you can just keep doing that over and over if you want to just brute force it but you know still it's it's a little bit it's a little bit of a kludge um and then let's say that you for instance are in a different scenario let's say you've got something installed let's say you've got gimp installed and a friend of yours sidles up next to you and says oh you have gimp i see i i actually need that do you think i could just grab that can you just give me the installer no you cannot you you you're not going to be able to just give them the installer for gimp you can't copy it from your computer to your thumb drive and then hand them to the thumb drive and then have them install it. That's just not something that, that Linux is set up to do because GIMP is now integrated into the whole system, right? So in order to do that, you would have to... Well, I don't know what you would have to do. You, you just wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, you'd have to be online and you'd have to grab the GIMP packages again, just just as we've just described. So it's not really set up for that. And And while there are hacks around not being able to do that easily, the, the point is that it is difficult. Whereas if you go to someone on... A different system they might say oh could i have that gimp installer and you can just drag the package the installer package whatever it may be whatever format that might be it might be an exe it might be a dmg whatever thumb drive hand it over installed done and, and then the further problem i think is that on linux if, if you've got those packages even if there are only like two dependencies or something there's this there's this hidden dependency on on the on the the very the, the very foundation of your system. So if if some very low level library that GIMP thought you should have on your system, and this package was designed for that one thing, then it will still fail. So if you have PNG sixteen instead of uh, f- or fourteen instead of sixteen or whatever, twelve instead of sixteen, whatever, uh, then then the package that you that you might have on a thumb drive is basically useless because things have been updated out from under it. So again just not quite set up for it. It really does assume that the network is the computer and that that network contains all potential applications and that you should just have access to that. And so you should be able to activate that application with a little flip of a switch, not necessarily always how things go. And and I know that to you that might be an edge case, but to me that's real world. That's like every, not every day, but I mean that's that's a real world every month kind of problem that I face because I frequently volunteer at either a community center or a school where the internet is either not available at all or very very slow or very very restricted. And then the other one, the other the the other big reason and there there are lots of reasons, but the the other big one that I see is that currently Linux packaging assumes that the developer, whoever that developer might be, has sort of bought into the Linux sphere. So they they are they're they're assuming that the developers are coming to Linux and saying, "Yeah, cool. Can't wait. Can't wait to spend the the week learning how to package for Linux and then and then packaging it up for Linux and then maintaining those packages and then automating that process and and this will be great." And not, you know, sometimes developers come to Linux and just they all they want is the quick and easy solution. They're like, "Somebody said I should release for Linux. I don't really want to, but here I am." So hit me. What do you got? Just show me, show me how I do this, and then let me, um, let me go, let me leave. 
and and we can't really haven't been able to meet them on that you know we can come to them and say okay well here's here's what i'm going to recommend you you should do the apt thing because we have a pretty large uh, ubuntu install base out in the world so if you do that you're going to hit a lot of them i think you'll be good so go for that okay great so that's one solution right but then you've got all the fedora people up in arms because it's not for them and then you've got all the slackware people all you know 15 of us angry and then you've got all the arch people who are going to reverse engineer what you've done anyway and roll their own and you've got these other people you know and it's just there's you it, it's a losing battle and we're setting people up for that we set them up for for anger really it's like hey developer come here so that we can give you something that looks like a fairly simple solution which will make all of our users angry at you now, isn't that an appealing prospect? Of course not. So the exciting thing for me about Flatpak and App Image is that it it answers, it it basically answers those two problems in varying degrees. So the 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 first one is not, as far as I know, answered by Flatpak. The um the problem of kind of having a sneaker nettable install 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 file. Now that is answered very solidly by App Image, and I'm very happy about that. And I, I still think that App Image is really probably the way that we should be going. But Flatpak is there. It's got a lot of support. It's got the support of I think the entire GNOME Foundation. So it's it's not going to go away. And Snap is right in here with with Flatpak. I've used Snap once to date. And uh, it was not a bad experience. So flat, flat pack and snap. Uh, I mean, snap. It just smacks of one of those. Uh, we're not going to do what everyone else is doing. Things that Ubuntu does a lot. So that's that's its thing. But either way, what we're talking about here, having like sort of almost container-like subsystems to run applications, such that the the larger dependency issues kind of disappear because Flatpak is is running here and so Flatpak will pull in what it needs for this depend you know to solve these dependencies so that that kind of that gets ar around the whole idea of I want to hit as much Linux as possible how can I do that 15 different package formats you say no thank you Flatpak one yeah let's do that so two problems I see being solved by two separate things. I mean, App Image, frankly, it, it solves both, right? I mean, App Image will work on on any distribution, and it works offline or online for installation. Its problem, I guess, is that it has pretty big, pretty big downloads, pretty large download sizes. Uh, Flatpak answers at least one of these problems. Either way, they're exciting. I think that the, this is probably the the most traction, and I've been around a lo long enough to have seen a couple of stabs at this. You know, I've I, I have seen a few people try to to solve this problem, and I mean, I think that even Nix OS kind of falls into that camp, although not not exactly because I don't think that was exactly their declaration that this was you know this that that, that they were solving these problems. But I mean, I feel like Nix OS came up a lot when people were looking for like the universal package manager. And, and maybe Nix OS is. I haven't really looked at it, and I, I probably should. The Nix package manager, I should look at it. But, um, you know, there have been other ones. I think one was called Zero Install, and, uh, you know, there have been a couple over the years. And, and, and I feel like these, these two are getting a lot of traction, and that, that's exciting. That's, that's encouraging to me. Because I, I feel like, like, 
Linux shouldn't, we shouldn't have this problem because we can solve this problem. And so it, it, it therefore feels like a, a pretty artificial problem to have. And I don't like those kinds of problems. Those are not the problems that I enjoy either facing or trying to solve, to be honest, because it's just, it's, it's silly. This, this is, this isn't, this can be solved easily. So let's, let's get this solved and then move on onto actually important issues. So that's what we're, that's what we're looking at. App image and flat pack. You know, and I guess, I guess the non-trivial, another non-trivial example of app image would be Caden Live. Caden Live has gotten a lot of, a lot of development this year, which is probably worth a mention in itself, but, but specifically they've started releasing as app images and it just, it makes it so easy to install. You download, again, granted a very large downloadable file it is these are not small files and i i recognize that about app image but in terms of ease of use and not having to worry about recompiling your entire mlt stack and that's that's not insignificant itself so it's 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 pretty cool that 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 caden live has been able to kind of utilize app image and prove that yeah this thing this actually works like this is this is working. I mean, I'm running, for instance, the same app image for Caden Live on Fedora as I am on Slackware, and there, there's been no problem with either. It's it's really really nice. Okay, so also this year, Nvidia dropped 32-bit support for Linux. Now, of course, Nvidia itself has been. I know that a lot of people, including Linus Torvalds himself, get angry at NVIDIA for, well, for things that people get angry at other companies for, really. I mean, communication, probably code quality here and there. You know, there's it's just, there are issues. People get angry at them. But, I mean, from a user perspective, as someone who has had to maintain computers with both AMD chips and NVIDIA chips for multimedia production, I gotta say, NVIDIA really is, it's the way that you would want to go. That's, it's, it's really a no-brainer, to be honest. I mean, certainly at the the film school and the film studio that I've worked at as a technical, uh, in a technical role, it's both, you know, one was my choice, but I mean, NVIDIA, and, and then at the studio, the, all the workstations were NVIDIA because it was, those were the drivers that, that with that hardware really, really worked. Like there was no question about it. Whereas AMD, it seemed to be a little bit, you, you had, you, you wouldn't, you couldn't bet on it, you know? It just wasn't, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that, that it would work. So, NVIDIA is pretty good for Linux in, in that sense, and dropping 32-bit support may be scandalous. It may not be. For me, I don't feel like it is, because generally, I think if you're doing serious workloads on a Linux box, or at this point on any box, and, and you need serious GPU performance, I just, I can't imagine you doing that on a 32-bit install, really. I, I would, I would be very surprised. And frankly, and this is probably not the, the right answer, on on some on some level but frankly the nouveau drivers can pick up a lot of that nvidia slack on you know if 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 you're using if you need it for 32-bit i i I imagine whatever workload you're doing on a 32-bit box is probably nouveau is going to be good enough for you to do on that 32-bit box instead of nvidia on 64-bit so i don't know i mean nvidia you know, it's not open source, but if, if you're looking at the, the ecosystem, if you're just looking at Linux support, I can't really complain about NVIDIA's Linux support. It is, it is 
treated me quite well over the years uh, when when needed. Now, in real life, I very rarely feel like I need NVIDIA drivers. Nouveau are they're they're fantastic drivers. I'm quite happy with them. But um, on productions where where they're actually leveraging the 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 low level features of a GPU, NVIDIA is the the clear winner there. So dropping 32-bit, while on one hand it seems like a major, a, a big step to take, I feel like it's not really that big of a deal. I do feel like 32-bit for for graphic stuff, I, I think it's it's fair to to assume that they're going to be that that, that they're quite well phased out by now. I think the bigger discussion that that I'm tempted to 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 get into here is 32-bit support in general and and I guess I I don't think that's really been specific to 2018. I feel like it's been going on for maybe at least 2 years now, but generally I because I like recycling old computers and really running them until they they just absolutely can't run anymore, I I feel like the 32-bit support is important, but I don't feel like there's really any urgent need to say, well, we want to have the same variety of choice on 32-bit as 64-bit. I, I feel, at least for my purposes, I don't feel like like I like I would expect that and even demand that. I, I feel like as long as there is a Linux for my 32-bit machine, that's fine. I can settle for for something that maybe normally I wouldn't wouldn't be my first choice. I can settle for it if 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 it just happens to be the the one thirty two bit machine that I have have uh, lying around. So yeah, I don't I, I don't know. I guess I feel less scandalized by a lot of the thirty two bit stuff than than I've heard other people f- feel. And, and maybe they have reasons. Maybe there are good reasons for 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 that, but f- certainly from my perspective, it's not really that big of a deal. So later in the year, I think about probably September or so, Valve announced their big project, uh, Proton, which is using the all the Wine technologies to make Lini- uh, games work on Linux, like non-Linux games work on Linux. And I mean, I can say that I am benefiting from this even today, so uh, it's it's certainly a convenience, and it it isn't. I mean, at, at, when I was first trying it, I I thought I thought maybe it was a really big deal, like really really significant thing, like a big like a game changer, and I, and I'm not convinced now that it is a game changer because it has it has failed enough on me in terms of uh, the the games that that will launch. It has failed enough on me now that that I'm seeing. Okay, this is this isn't this isn't a guarantee. But then again, neither is it over yet. So at some point, they they may have it finely tuned so that if 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 there's a, a release in in April, then I'll be uh, for a Windows only game, then I'll be running it in May on Linux. Who knows? Maybe maybe that's where they're headed. Maybe it's not. Uh, and and for a casual gamer like myself, that's okay because I can wait a couple of months or a year even for for the the support to catch up. Um, but obviously, the it would be ideal if it was if it was seamless. If it was like you know more like a month out or or I don't know same day release, would that be possible? Okay, so um, yeah, so that that's good. That's Proton. It's exciting. Hopefully, it'll get more exciting. So later in the year. And actually, you know, I'm forgetting two things that I wanted to mention as well because it's probably it is probably worth uh, keeping track of. But anyway, um, earlier, later in the year, rather, 
uh, some some interesting things sort of related happened. One of them is so you remember how just a little while ago I was saying how Nvidia not super open source friendly but pretty good on the computers nevertheless. So so turns out that their their physics engine which is called PhysX P H Y S X their physics engine which is GPU accelerated so it's you know it's quite nice very good. Um, they decided to make it open source. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that they intend to discard PhysX, and are they developing something else that that they're 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 going to use instead of PhysX, or or what? What what's what's happening? Um, I don't know. But but from what they're saying on their website, and I'll try to remember to include a link. Um, and this is a couple of weeks ago now, I think. Yeah, it's it's um. It, it, this is old news because this is the year in review. This is Dece- oh, it's actually quite recent. It's December third. Never mind. Um, so it's fairly new news, but they're going BSD three. So it's a pretty pretty permissive license, I would say. I mean that that's kind of the the license that you that you really want if you don't want any restri- restrictions. And this is exciting because this is this is the kind of thing that does frequently get in the way of uh, a lot of the the games coming to Linux by default. Now, I don't know enough about this sort of thing to know whether, you know, how PhysX itself really gets distributed. I know that it is integrated into uh, both Unreal Engine, um, with the later ones, the the ones that are cross-platform, and Unity. So those are the kind of the, the big two cross-platform game development frameworks that a lot of people kind of have been using lately. And and certainly, I mean, you can't complain if you're a gamer on Linux. If people are using those, it is it is relatively easy to then export those projects to Linux. It's not it's not a one click deal necessarily. It kind of depends on on how they're developing and and whether they've been developing with cross platform in mind. But but it is pretty simple. So having PhysX uh, sort of integrated into that certainly could does has has made it quite easy to target different platforms. And that's a that's a great great thing. And the fact that they've open sourced it and 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 not just made it easy you know easily available. I mean, it is actually open sourced. It is on GitHub.com. You can go download the code. You can fork it right now. You can get a copy for yourself. You will own that code forever. Very very exciting. And it just didn't really seem necessary. This is this is some of the most interesting things that I've seen. I think I feel like lately, like this year specifically, or maybe the past two years, it just feels like there have been lots of things happening toward open source that you just you don't get the immediate. Well, of course they would do that. Like if they since they've done that, they they'll be able to do something else. You know, do, they can make money off of this or whatever. I mean, it just seems it seems unnecessary. But welcome. So I'm I'm quite excited about it. I I think this is a, a very good sign. And then in in another sort of semi-related thing, I guess, is that the this thing called Steam Link, which is kind of uh from what I understand, I've never used it, but from what I understand, it's this, it's kind of a um it is a thing that streams games from your I I think well from your main workstation whatever that may be I don't know if it has to be a Windows workstation or if it can be Steam OS or both or either I don't know but it seems it from like your primary gaming computer to some other device on your network and they now have a Steam Link app uh, application for the Raspberry Pi 
So in theory, from what I'm sort of gathering, is that you could hook up a Raspberry Pi to your television and then run Steam Link on it and play your games really through the front end of your Pi, which to me just sounds... Um, it's just bizarrely, uh, I mean, I just don't even know how the pie could handle any, it's just, the pie seems so weak to me. I'm, I, I don't understand how it could even, how it could even display <laughs> the graph. I mean, I, obviously they're being pre-rendered on your main workstation, I'm, I'm assuming. And then, and basically just being sort of streamed to the, you know, st- yeah, basic streaming to the pie. But honestly, I'm not even clear if I know that how the pie can handle basic streamed, streamed video it just seems so so weak to me but maybe i'm just over you know maybe i'm underselling it but the, and again that that just seems unnecessary to me i mean i, I guess i get it i mean it, it is obviously within their interest to make sure that lots of devices can interface with steam like they're doing that now they they get that and and so so cool it, it's neat but it's just it, they didn't have to do the pie you know they they didn't actually have to it just seems like a it seems like a fun side project for someone at Valve, and and they released it. So no complaints. Okay, so the other two things that I feel like I probably ought to mention, and, and this is a little bit very much within sort of my immediate world, but the, the two two important acquisitions happened this year. One was CoreOS. Now, CoreOS I never even got a chance to talk about. I feel like it appeared, it hung out for a little while, and then got bought up by Red Hat. But CoreOS is... It's a container, a Kubernetes and container technology that that was seeking to, yeah, be its own company at the time. And it was an operating system based on, on the Linux kernel, specifically designed for containers. So that, that was kind of where it was going to carve out its, its little place in the world. And Red Hat bought it up and is now integrating it into, into normal Red Hat technologies. And then crazy crazier still of course was that last month or so it was announced that red hat was itself bought up by ibm for something like 34 billion dollars so that's rather surprising as well so we've got lots of sort of major shifts within the landscape of open source this year and and then interesting kind of migrations within open source i mean not not exactly a migration i guess but but yeah, people are kind of wandering into open source territory from places where we just didn't maybe see them coming at first, you know? And and certainly Microsoft, their, their sort of edging into open source has been going on for certainly, it must be two years by now, right? But it's just, it's kind of fascinating to see it continue and continue. And it's kind of like, wait, wait a minute, they seem to be kind of serious about this. And that that's a that's a big deal. I mean, they purchased. I guess that's another thing that I haven't mentioned yet. Microsoft purchased GitHub. That was a big deal this this year. A lot of people had feelings about that. Me, not so much. I mean, GitHub is still closed source, so it, it's it is very funny Microsoft's interpretation of open source. But it continues to flirt with open source. And I think just recently it open sourced yet another thing. I think it's something on the .NET spectrum or the Visual Code spectrum, some something related to that, you know. They and they just kind of keep open sourcing little things here and there. And then I think it was just this week they announced that they were going to, I think, from what I understand, they're going to drop their Microsoft Edge browser 
and create a browser based off of the open source uh, Chromium source code, or, or the open source Chrome base. WebKit, I guess, is the way to say it. But whatever that is, like whatever base that is, they're going to apparently be be developing a browser on top of that, which, who knows? For all I know, it's going to be cross-platform. It's really hard to say. Some people are saying that's a good thing. Some say some say it's a bad thing because everything's now migrating sort of toward Google dominant code. But I mean, in theory, who cares, right? It's, if if it's the open source variety of of this WebKit stuff, then then great, right? I mean, it's it's another open source browser, uh, maybe. I don't know because I've been fooled by that before. You know, like the whole Vivaldi being open source thing. Well, not exactly open source. Parts of it are open source. So. There's a lot of there's a lot of unanswered questions out there, but the 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 bigger point I think is that 2018 has seen both major shifts in the open source landscape and and a lot of um, a lot of migrants coming into the open source space, kind of looking to participate, and that's a good thing. I guess my my main concern overall, after having gone to the All Things Open conference, I feel like there's there is a definite market out there right now of companies that I guess you could describe them as being friendly to open source. Like open source, open source friendly, which I don't, you know, like what is, what does that mean? I mean, that's a term I'm making up. So especially what does that mean? But, but even so, like, what are these companies doing where they, they come to open source conferences and they pitch to open source people these closed source services. But somehow, because they're using the right terminology and they're using the right marketing tricks, they are somehow seen as an ally of open source, even though they're completely closed source themselves. Or if not completely, then they are closed source. Like the important bits are closed source. And and I guess the 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 biggest and most obvious example of that would be GitHub, right? There's GitHub. Sure, there are some things that GitHub has open-sourced, I, I guess. I haven't looked lately, but I'm sure there were some parts of something that they open-sourced. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just thinking of Git itself, which is open-source, but that was that's it's not within their control at all. So there's this thing that they're sort of an ally of open-source, but the stack is closed. Like, we can't, we can't re-implement GitHub locally. We can't look at what's going on. I mean, I've heard it ain't pretty, but still, it's there. And Docker is another great example. You know, Docker kind of came along and, and really changed the landscape of containers, not this year, just in general. And, and it wasn't, I, I feel like it wasn't really until Docker that anyone got serious about, okay, let's, actually look into this Linux container thing. Like, how does this, how does this work? How do users actually use this? What, what can we do? I mean, I, I know that it, it was, it was happening. Like, things were happening. But I feel like Docker really gave it a, a, a push in the, in, in that direction because it was, hey, competition's on the scene. But, but a lot of people were okay with that. I mean, Docker was okay for a long while because it was like, well, it's closed source, but I mean, you know, it's, Linux, it's an ally of open source, and and I you you almost can't argue with that because on one hand you're right, like Docker Docker works with Linux, and and even when you're running Docker on Mac or Windows, you are you are running a Linux. The the container that you are running is a Linux container, so you've got this this runtime of a closed source system, but 
within it, you've, you're, you're running Linux. So, you know, that, that's probably actually the best example of this because it, it really presents the, the full conundrum. There's this, the, an ally of open source that is even spreading open source, but is itself a closed source system. So how do you feel about that? Personally, I don't, I don't love it. I'm not, I'm not too excited about it. I, I feel like, um, I feel like probably the same work at Docker could have been done open source, and they probably would have just have been just as successful. I, I feel like the and I'm not a business person, but I feel like the business the the business aspect out there really really underestimates the um, the the value of someone going to market at all. I feel like they they seem to think that if things are open source, then when they go to market, there will be twenty other people at the market already. And I I don't think that that's the case. I I certainly from what I've seen, it takes someone very special in their own special way um, to go to market with something at all. Because like most of us normal day regular folk, we don't know how to do that effectively. We may be able to offer open source code on the internet, but these days that's not that big of a deal. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing to be able to be sitting here in 2018 and saying open source on the internet is cheap. Like, that's not that big of a deal anymore. It's great. It's great to be able to say that. But it 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 makes it all the more puzzling when you see places cling to their code as if though it is their only true asset. Like, this is all we have. And in a way, I keep thinking, that's not all you have. Like, that's the least of what you have. Like, I can do everything that, for instance, Adobe does. I can do everything that they do on my Linux box without a shred of Adobe code on my system. And yet they cling to it. Like, that's their, that's the thing that they're, that they have. And it's just not. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know, they're probably a bad example because I don't actually know what they add outside of their own code. They, they don't seem to be a very useful company to me. But, but things like Docker, for instance, like they can completely provide like all these services and all these conveniences and guarantees to people who are willing to pay for containers. And then people who aren't, well, they're not going to buy Docker anyway, so who cares? That they, they weren't your audience. And I guess I feel, I guess that's actually the same answer for Adobe, for instance. Like if we're, if we're trying to broaden the scope here from, from enterprise infrastructure stuff to just normal computer stuff, I feel like even Adobe, and I feel like it's built into their business model that they're making money off of the, the businesses or the, 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 yeah, the businesses really, even if it's a sole proprietor, it's a, it's a business being, you know, making enough money to need to pay for guarantees while other people are using the software and not paying. And they kind of shrug it off apparently because it's not something they're really fighting very effectively. I guess they're getting better at it now with their uh, cloud subscription thing, but, but still people are using the software without paying for it. And, and they're not making money off of those people and they're not making money of those off of those people in any case. So why bother? So yeah, the code I just feel is, is cheap in 2018, which is great. It's a great place to be because that means there's a lot of open code out there. We need more companies to jump on board, I guess, but to actually jump on as open source companies, not open source allies. And that's it. That is everything I can think that happened in 2018. There's probably been more things that have happened. There have been lots of exciting things like security vulnerabilities and and new distributions probably and releases of old ones and yeah there there's been lots going on but those i guess those are the highlights and things that if if we if we look back at them and 
try to remember when did that thing happen? Well, now we know it. It happened in 2018 because it's recorded. You'll have to listen to the whole episode to find out, and it's not very well organized. But there you go. That's everything that happened in 2018. Thanks for listening uh, to the show. It's been great. Uh, this has been an interesting experiment this year, doing weekly releases. And I have to say, it's worked out really well for me, and I and I hope for you, dear listener. Uh, so that's what I intend to do in 2019. Just keep doing the weekly release. New World Order every week on Sunday or Monday, whatever, and uh, we'll just keep doing that. Thanks for listening. See you next year. Well, this year, but see you next season. Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Og Cast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.